This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Nearly 1 million individuals in the United States have multiple sclerosis. Most acquire the disease between the ages of 20 and 50. A diagnosis of MS can be difficult to establish as the symptoms can be quite vague and often vary significantly from one individual to another. The disease can be very frightening, often debilitating, and progressive. And up until recently, we've had very little to offer patients in the way of treatment. However, there have been numerous advances in treatment options, which have given hope to the many patients with MS. So we'll be discussing multiple sclerosis in today's podcast with our guest, Dr. Owen Flanagan, a neurologist from the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic. Owen, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, let's start by, I'm going to ask you to review the various pathologic changes that occur in MS and, and then how these pathology changes result in the commonly seen symptoms. Yeah, I think in MS, if we think about it as an insulation problem, you know, we have something called myelin that covers our nerves within the brain. And MS is often referred to as a demyelinating disease, which means that the myelin comes off. And that's because our immune system attacks that myelin and removes it from the cables, what we call the axons in the brain. And this slows down the transmission of signals. And this can lead to blurred vision, for example, if it happens in the optic nerve, because once you don't have the insulation, like if you have a cable to your television and a mouse has eaten at it, this signal won't be correct. And similarly, along the brain function and spinal cord function, you may get symptoms related to that slow transmission because the insulation has been lost. And what the body does is, if you get some treatments, the body itself will try and remyelinate and put some of that insulation back on those nerves, but it does it kind of incompletely and not perfectly, and that can leave some patients with some residual symptoms, although a lot of times patients have what we call relapsing remitting symptoms, which means the symptoms come when that myelin is lost, and then as we improve things and reduce that myelin and swelling, there can be improvement where the remission comes in. Mm-hmm. It can take months, sometimes even years, to establish a diagnosis of MS in a patient. Why is this so difficult? I think it's complicated because some of the symptoms can overlap with other things. So one of the most common symptoms is numbness that might start in the feet and then kind of ascend up and go up to the belly button and you might feel numb all the way down and have some minor symptoms like imbalance. And sometimes the symptoms are mild, so patients may put it off to a trapped nerve or something like that, and then it might go away, and then they might not get the diagnosis right away. Or other times, if you have numbness in your hand or other possibilities that might come in, like carpal tunnel syndrome, if there's brain involvement, sometimes you can have imbalance. And it can be a bit of a challenge for a primary care provider to pick up on these subtle neurologic symptoms and know to order the right test to look for MS. So it can be a challenge. And one other issue that we sometimes see in the field is overdiagnosis of MS. Because the symptoms, as you mentioned earlier, are a little bit vague, patients can have fatigue or other symptoms that are common in the general population. And those patients will sometimes get an MRI and there might be some white spots on the MRI. Just like as we get older, we can get gray hairs. Some people can get 
white spots in the brain that are just related to aging and not of any concern. But sometimes that brings up the possibility of multiple sclerosis because multiple sclerosis does cause these white spots. But in general, we have tools that can help us kind of distinguish the ones of normal aging from the typical MS. You mentioned that numbness in the extremities is a common presenting symptom. What are some other common symptoms that uh, may signal the onset of MS? Yeah, I think vision is another one. So patients may get blurred vision in their eye or pain with moving the eyes that may lead to them really having very blurred vision, not being able to see out of the eye. Another symptom would be developing double vision. And these symptoms tend to come on over many days to a few weeks. So they're not super sudden in onset, but kind of come on over days, worsen, plateau, and then often will improve over time. So there's some of the common ones. One other one would be imbalance. So for example, patients may note that they have trouble with walking. They might need to grab onto someone as they're moving. And then in some patients with a more progressive form, they may get a slow, gradual onset of symptoms where they might drag one leg at a distance. For example, they might walk four miles and they notice that they start to drag their right leg. And that can get progressively worse where it happens earlier each different year and can progress over time to impact the ability to walk. Okay. Can you go over the different types of multiple sclerosis? Yeah, I think that there's two major categories that we think about. There is the relapsing form where patients develop these symptoms that come on over many days or weeks and then gradually decline over time. And that's associated with a lot of active inflammation in the brain usually. And we have lots of good treatments for that. The second component is what we call the progressive phase of multiple sclerosis. And that can begin many years after the initial diagnosis of MS and that relapsing form where patients transition to this more slow, gradual progression. And this is where patients get into trouble more because that slow progression can worsen to the point where it can make patients need to use a gait aid, for example, a cane to ambulate a walker or really affect their walking ability. For that one, we don't have quite as good a treatments at the moment, although we have some treatments that are mildly effective. But the hope is that maybe if we get in early with these excellent new treatments that we have, that we could maybe prevent that secondary progressive phase from happening if we treat patients early enough and prevent some of those scars from forming that we think contribute to that long-term issue. Does one type have a better prognosis than the other? Yeah, I, I think the relapsing remitting or relapsing form of MS has the better prognosis. And if you can get in early with treatment, then those patients may never develop that progressive form. And nowadays with the treatments that we have, we can really stop MS in its tracks. So that, that gets to the importance of that early diagnosis and getting patients on treatment early so that they don't develop those scars that can lead to long-term damage. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there anything new regarding what sets this off, what the cause is? I know at one time it was maybe a virus, but uh, I haven't seen anything recently. Anything new regarding the cause? Yeah, I think there's been more and more data showing that the Epstein-Barr virus seems to have a role in patients developing MS. In fact, in most of us in our lives, we will get Epstein-Barr virus, but for people who never get Epstein-Barr virus, their risk of MS is very low. So it's thought that that might play a role. And other things that can play a role are cigarette smoking. So we do recommend not to smoke cigarettes, particularly for patients with MS, because it can make also make their MS worse. And um, vitamin D deficiency seems to play a role. So we'll often check the vitamin D level and supplement patients who are low in vitamin D. 
And then obesity seems to be also another risk factor for developing MS. Is there any genetic tendency to this? There is a genetic tendency, but it's different to some genetic diseases that pass on one generation to the next. The risk if you have MS of a first degree relative having MS is about 5%. So 95% chance they won't get it. So there are some genetic factors that increase the risk in family members, but it's not like a one-to-one where it passes down generation to generation. So we don't understand fully, but it's probably something related to that genetic and environmental influence, maybe vitamin D, maybe Epstein-Barr virus contributing, along with your genetic profile that puts you at risk of developing MS. Mm-hmm. The other thing, there seems to be a geographic tendency for this condition too. Can you describe that a little bit? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm from Ireland. Um, MS is quite common in Ireland, in the United Kingdom, in the Nordic countries, and in Canada and the northern USA. So it seems to be that uh, places that are further away from the equator tend to have more. So, for example, New Zealand, southern Australia, South Africa would have more, but places that are near the equator would tend to have less. We don't know why that is, but it might be partly some of the vitamin D deficiency because sunlight is less in those regions, or there might be other genetic factors uh, playing a role there. But certainly that's been seen at the extremes of latitude, the risk of MS uh, increases. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is the female predominance of this disease. It's like twice as common in females than males. Uh, Any thoughts as to why? Yeah, I think that just relates to it being part of these autoimmune type diseases and autoimmune diseases in general for some probably genetic reason tend to be more common in women. So I think that's an important point. And I think for practitioners who see a patient in the clinic, particularly if it's a female patient, complaining of this new numbness from the waist down or numbness on half the body, they really need to take those symptoms seriously and make sure they're going to look and maybe you know refer to a neurologist or consider some additional investigations to try and um, determine the cause. Mm-hmm. What role does age play in MS in both, you know, acquiring the disease? Does it tend to be worse if you acquire it at an older age or younger age? And how about the rate of progression? What does age do to this? Yeah, age is important. So the relapsing form of MS tends to occur at a younger age. So that's females, as we said earlier, in their 20s or 30s, where we see this most commonly occur. We see the progressive phase where patients develop what we call primary progressive multiple sclerosis, where they never have any of those relapsing symptoms and they just progressively get worse. That tends to occur at an older age, maybe at age 40 or 50. And that secondary progressive phase also occurs at an older age. And probably at an older age, patients have less ability to recover. You know, younger brains have uh, more capacity probably to remyelinate and to recover from episodes. So sometimes what we see is if older patients have episodes, they don't quite recover as well as younger patients. And this is where getting on with the treatment is so important to prevent those relapses and prevent that damage, particularly as people get older, um, if they're having relapses, it's important to treat those because each one can leave a long-lasting damage and that can be problematic for patients. Mm-hmm. Suppose a female that has MS wants to get pregnant. Is, is there a, an issue with pregnancy and MS? Yeah, it's something that we talk to our patients about all the time. 
what we tell them is that patients with MS can certainly become pregnant. There's been many MS patients who've had successful pregnancies, multiple pregnancies. And if anything, during the pregnancy, the hormonal changes tend to be protective. So it's almost like being on an MS medication during the pregnancy. Sometimes after patients give birth, there can be a slight increased risk of developing more inflammation after giving birth. And we have medications now that we can use, and some of the medications have long-lasting effects for six to nine months, for example. So sometimes we might treat a patient with a medication. The medication is out of the system, and that medication is going to work for six or nine months, and then they might plan to become pregnant, and the medication would cover them through that period, and then they could get redosed um, in the postpartum period. So certainly, uh, you know, we don't dissuade our patients with MS from having pregnancy, but we need, we like them to let the doctors know so we can make those medication adjustments and give recommendations. And including breastfeeding is okay in MS patients, and if anything, can also have a protective effect and has lots of additional benefits. So we encourage our, our patients to continue to breastfeed, and we just need to make some certain adjustments around medication treatment at that time. Okay. Well, we talked a little bit about the difficulty in establishing a diagnosis, but I think we are often, we often think of the disease based on the patient's medical history and maybe some physical exam findings, but where do we go after that? What can help confirm a diagnosis of MS? Yeah, I think our best diagnostic tool, unfortunately, we don't have a single test that can tell you it's MS, but we use a compilation of testing. And our best diagnostic tool is an MRI. And we usually do an MRI of the brain and the spinal cord because MS can affect the brain and the spinal cord. So we do an MRI of the cervical and thoracic spine and of the brain. And in general, with all MS patients, there will be some abnormalities there. And then to confirm the diagnosis, a lot of times we'll do a spinal tap to make confirmation. We can look for something called oligoclonal bands, which are present in 85% of MS patients. So those two things can really help solidify the diagnosis. We don't always need the spinal tap because sometimes it's clear from the MRIs, but they can help. And then we, you know, we look for what we call mimics of MS. So if there's other conditions that are kind of cousins of MS, other autoimmune conditions that can affect the brain, and we have a variety of different blood tests and other tests that we can do. But most of the time, the diagnosis can be pretty clear with just those testing of the MRI of the brain and the spinal cord and the spinal tap. Okay. Well, now let's talk about the exciting area with MS. There's been lots of progress made in the management and treatment options. I recall years ago, all we had to offer patients were steroids, and now we've got a lot of really good treatment options out there. Tell us about those. Particularly in the last five years, we've made some real good progress. And we these are sometimes called disease-modifying treatments, or DMTs. And previously, we used to have injectable treatments under the skin, uh, glutyramer acetate, or also known as copaxone, or interferon-type medications, and they were only mildly effective, and many patients will continue to break through, developing new scars and new issues. We now have very strong medications, what we call high-efficacy medications, that can kind of stop MS in its tracks. So when you come in to the doctor, if you get on this treatment, most of the patients will remain completely stable, they won't develop new MRI lesions, and the medications are overall safe over time. So our hope is that the future looks much better than the past for MS, because we all think about MS for those severe patients who have had trouble with walking or ended up in a wheelchair. I think the future is going to be that if we get these medications started um, early in the appropriate 
patients that we can prevent a lot of that long-term disability. So we talked about it being difficult to treat progression, but in fact, prevention of progression is going to be the most important fact. And I think that gets to that importance of early diagnosis and getting on treatment right away. So I think this is a really hopeful time for our MS patients. And I think really the future outlook of our MS patients is going to be much better. Now, these medications don't come without any side effects because they do lower the immune system. They're very effective at reducing inflammation, but there are some increased risks of infection. And we get worried about that, particularly as people get older and their ability to fight infections with immunosenescence and other issues become more of an issue. That can become a bit more concerning. But overall, the benefits of these medications far outweigh the risks. And really, in this day and age, we're often using those strong, effective medications. They're well tolerated. Some of them just require a treatment every six months and can um, really keep MS quiet and prevent any of that long-term damage. Now, we've had medications available for the relapsing form, but I think more recently, the chronic progressive has received some FDA-approved medications too. Is that right? Uh, That's correct. Yes. So for the primary progressive form of multiple sclerosis, a medication called ocrelizumab was shown to reduce the degree of um, worsening over time. So it does kind of tend to slow that worsening. It's not a perfect medication. It doesn't stop it completely in its tracks, but it does slow that worsening. And that might be quite important for a patient over time. Of course, we always have to weigh up the benefits and risks in some of those patients with progression. For example, in elderly patients, the risk of infection and things becomes more of an issue. So with that medication and a progressive form, we have to weigh up the benefits and risks a little bit in our elderly patients. But in general, this is great progress and there's lots more studies into progression. But I think the key is because most patients present with that relapsing inflammatory form. If we can dampen down that inflammation early on and then prevent that progression, that's the key. And then, you know, there are lots of studies going on into patients who do have progression to see if there's other things. So I think there's going to be more medications coming, but I think that one of the keys is early diagnosis. And this is where our primary care physicians come in to try and make sure they get that referral to a neurologist and get things underway so we can get those patients started on treatment. Because the term multiple sclerosis means multiple scars. And those scars that we get in the brain and particularly in the spinal cord are the things that contribute to that later progression. So if we can stop those scars and stop the disease in its tracks, we're hopeful that in the long term, our patients will have a much better outcome and that, you know, they'll be able to continue doing all the things they like to do. Mm-hmm. Well, many of our patients who are living in rural areas of the country don't have easy access to a neurologist. So how should patients with MS in these areas be followed by primary care providers? Yeah, I think it's important to try and find a neurologist and get the treatment underway. Once the treatment is underway, if it's an effective treatment, the follow-up is less important once you can get them on the treatment. So, you know, sometimes if there's no neurology available close by, for example, at Mayo Clinic, we have lots of openings for new patients and you could look further afield to try and find a neurologist to try and at least get the diagnosis and get the patient started on a treatment. And then after that, you know, they may be able to get into a neurologist locally and we can transition the care. 
So I think it's important to kind of um, maybe look further afield if you're not getting an early enough appointment, because it is important to get these patients on treatment sooner rather than later kind of thing. And then, you know, the primary care physician's role as well is in those patients who are on immune-lowering medications. If they do have fevers, chills, or develop symptoms of an infection, it's important that those get looked at carefully in those patients because they can get worse quickly, for example, with COVID-19, et cetera. So we want to make sure that those patients are vaccinated, if they're eligible for Evyshield, that they're getting that. And you know that the primary care physicians are watching out for some of those infections and letting the neurologist know that if the patient's developing a lot of infections, maybe that immune-lowering medication is not for them if they're developing too many infections. Or sometimes there's things that we can do that can reduce the risk of infection in those patients. Do MS patients need an MRI of the brain and spinal cord annually? What if they're not showing any signs of progression? Uh, We usually do follow them every so often. With these newer, stronger medications, we are seeing less and less of that breakthrough activity. But because not all of those scars that come cause symptoms right away, but that long-term damage can be an issue, we usually like to survey with MRIs about every year or year and a half, at least for the first five to six years. And then sometimes we can extend the period out of MRI surveillance. So that is something that we do on a regular basis. Okay. Where do you see the future going in MS? I mean, certainly the last five years have been very exciting in terms of treatment options. What's the future hold? Well, there are a few things, you know, here at Mayo Clinic, for example, we're now looking at some gait analysis. So we're trying to follow patients and we have a special gait mat that they can walk on and we can measure how they're doing year on year and see if they're developing any of those subtle changes of progression and maybe adjust their treatment accordingly. So there are some interesting aspects of studying the walking or we're trying to get a video based analysis where we can do an analysis and see if there's any early changes there. So that's something novel that that Mayo is starting to offer. We also have some blood biomarkers. There's one called neurofilament light, which is a marker of neurologic damage that you can measure in the blood. And we might incorporate that in addition with our MRI findings to help make treatment decisions. And then I think in the future, you know, there's a lot of interest in remyelinating therapy. So trying to re-insulate those damaged nerves and how we can do that. So I think there's going to be more and more studies of that and how we can help that progressive phase of the disease to prevent that disability for those who get progression. Again, prevention is better than cure. So getting in with that early strong treatment is a good idea in most patients. And then in those patients who do develop that progression, then we need to get more treatments. And I think that's where the field is going to focus. Mm-hmm. Well, Owen, you've given some really encouraging news about MS. Can you summarize our discussion, maybe give us two or three key points? Yeah, I think the first point is, you know, we want to make sure we get the diagnosis right at the start. So we don't make the mistake where a patient who has a migraine gets an MRI and somebody says they have MS. We have to be a little bit careful there. And we can involve our neurologists who are very good at figuring that out. And then, you know, it's important for primary care physicians to refer the patient on, or if a patient does have these symptoms of numbness that may seem innocuous enough, if it's something new for the patient and they're concerned about that they are referred on or those investigations are undertaken. And then finally, you know, with these new, very effective treatments, we can stop MS in its tracks. So, 
I think getting patients early onto treatment for most patients, that's going to be a good idea. And that's going to stop the disease in its tracks. And really, the future is great for those patients if we can get in early, get the diagnosis early, get them on a good treatment, and then they can get on with their lives. I tell patients, I don't want MS to dominate your life. It's something that you should consider a nuisance and something that we can manage with these medications. But we want you to get on with your life. And with these new medications, we can really stop it in its tracks. So I think it's a really hopeful time for our patients with MS, a really exciting time for neurologists to practice in the area because we have so much to offer these patients. We've been discussing multiple sclerosis with Dr. Owen Flanagan from the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic. Owen, thank you so much for sharing this uh, news with us. It's, uh, it is truly exciting and very good news to hear. No, thanks so much for the opportunity. And yeah, I'm very hopeful for our patients with MS. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.